On this podcast, we explore fantastical thinking, moral panics, conspiracy theories, and urban legends, examine the forces that shape our culture, and tell the stories that create the realities we share, and sometimes the realities we don't. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. And that's what's so amazing. We don't know why we're like this. It was the, the biggest uh, fan club in the world was outside the Paramount Theater. Now, ladies and gentlemen, Elvis By now, we are so well accustomed to this scene that we hardly even notice the fanfare anymore. The massive stadiums teeming with screaming seas of hysterical fans all swarmed around their most beloved teenage idol. Lost in the fevered dream of the words he sings about love, lost in the perfect swoop of his almost enchanted hair. We know they're out there, those teenage girls who are screaming and weeping and fainting and peeing their pants at the sight of any number of these cleanly manufactured parent-approved boy wonders of the week. And though we might poke fun at these die-hard fans, at this point our culture considers it relatively harmless. But there was a time not long ago when these hysterical teenage girls were not only ridiculed mercilessly, but actually inspired moral panics that presented the fangirl as acutely dangerous to the American empire. And they got pretty dramatic about it. More dramatic, one could say, than the so-called hysterical fangirls themselves. For example, when the Beatles played Shea Stadium in 1965, the New York Times had this to say, quote, Their immature lungs produced a sound so staggering, so massive, so shrill and sustained that it crossed the line from enthusiasm into hysteria. And soon it was in the area of the classic Greek meaning of the word pandemonium, the region of the demons. For this episode, we'll be looking at four different eras in the development of pop music fangirls, starting all the way back in the mid-1800s and ending with Beatlemania. We'll look at the public's alarmist reaction to these hysterias and see what it has to do with changing gender roles and the sexual revolution. Our next episode, called Boy Bands, will pick it up from there. But for now, let's travel back to meet the man who we could consider the first modern pop star and to meet his head of moody hair that made young women go wild as they tore at his clothes right there on stage, trying to grab a piece of the dream. But a dream of what? Now, we usually try to keep our stories within the borders of the United States of America. But for this topic, it's worth crossing the Atlantic into mid-1800s Germany, 
where a hot young composer and the first virtuoso, or solo piano player, was causing extreme frenzies, sometimes described as ecstatic or even mystical in nature. The unorthodox, wild playing style and compositions of Franz Liszt caused what German poet Heinrich Heine would coin Listomania after he witnessed the craze firsthand. How convulsively his mere appearance affected them. How boisterous was the applause which rang to meet him. What a claim it was. A veritable insanity. How powerful, how shattering was his mere physical appearance. Seeming to create the rock star entrance as we know it today, Franz Liszt would walk on stage from the wings of the concert hall as screams erupted, and then he'd sit down at his piano, which he had positioned so that the audience could see his face while he played. And what a cute face it was. Like the die-hard fans of musical heartthrobs we know today, the voracious fangirls of Franz Liszt were not fucking around. Teenage girls and women would arrive wearing his picture on their brooches and cameos, and then thousands of them would swarm around the stage and try desperately to touch any part of him or to touch anything that he had possibly touched. If they did manage to get a hold of his handkerchief or gloves, they would often rip them apart until it seemed that each attendee in the vicinity had gotten their tiny piece. If he broke a piano string, young women would fight over it and then make cool bracelets to show off at their school. Other, even bigger fans went farther than that, bringing with them glass vials in case they might get their hands on one of his coveted coffee cups, and then they could keep his dregs forever. In one oft-told story, Franz tossed the stump of his cigar into a gutter, and then a fan fished it out and put it in a locket monogrammed with the letters FL in diamonds. And despite her friends telling her that it smelled terrible, she wore it every day. Apparently, other young women skipped all that fancy shit entirely and just stuck his cigar butts into their cleavage. And yes, women did indeed throw their underwear on stage, something unimaginably, unthinkably scandalous for the time. Hans Christian Andersen, of all people, once described Franz Liszt as, quote, a slim young man with dark hair hung around his pale face. Just like today, the frenzy seemed to be as much about his hair as it was about his music. In 1893, Sir Charles Halley wrote of the pianist, quote, he wears his perfectly lank hair so long that it spreads over his shoulders, which looks very odd, for when he gets a bit excited, it falls right over his face, and one sees nothing of his nose. So many women started writing to Franz to get a lock of his iconic mop 
that he actually bought a dog with the same color hair as his and began stealing snips from its coat whenever he needed to fulfill a request. And this actually lasted beyond his life as well, when the woman who found his dead body called his daughter to tell her the news, pausing only for a moment before requesting that she might clip off a lock of his beautiful hair to keep before, you know, returning the corpse to her. So what was the reaction like in 1800s Germany? Well, the populace of Berlin at the time was described by progressive intellectuals as deeply repressed, very prone to hierarchy and with strict gender roles, a culture also especially reserved in expressing emotion. Though the name harkens forward to Beatlemania, which we'll cover shortly, there is an important difference. Mania then was a term not used as casually as it is now, and many authority figures considered listomania an actual illness, and not just a mental illness. They floated the idea, very seriously, of developing a vaccine against what they thought might be germs passed around in concert halls or unexplained cases of mass epilepsy. And of course, the bearded 19th century psychotherapists peered over their shitty little glasses at these hordes of hysterical women, using the label and the darling namesake of our show to describe their mania. Hysteria has, since the Egyptians and the ancient Greeks, been used to describe a variety of symptoms assumed to be related to that crazy old uterus, which was once seen as a kind of being within a being, an animal within the animal, something unrestrained that drove women to madness. Once Sigmund Freud got his nasty mitts on the term, it became a kind of catch-all diagnosis for women experiencing anything from anxiety and depression to sleeplessness, irritability, shortness of breath, fainting, and of course, sexually forward behavior or too much sexual desire, which led to a, quote, tendency to cause trouble for others. After a long, masculine hullabaloo over the effects this man was having on their beloved city, Franz Liszt finally left Berlin, much to the relief of the status quo of 19th century Germany, well expressed by a local newspaper. Quote, The women are once again taking care of children, kitchen, and husband. That was a close one. And when I told them how beautiful you are. Let's fast forward a hundred years after Listomania ended, when Franz Liszt left the modern world behind to become a monk, which honestly I get. This time, we find ourselves back in America, staring up at a brand new idol, known to his adorers as Frankie. When Young Blue Eyes played his very first solo show on December 30th, 1942, it was absolute pandemonium at the New York City Paramount Theater near Times Square, as 5,000 mostly teenage girls swarmed the stage. 
Frankie would describe that first night like this. The sound that greeted me was absolutely deafening. It was a tremendous roar. 5,000 kids stamping, yelling, screaming, applauding. I was scared stiff. I couldn't move a muscle. Soon after, Frank Sinatra would become known as Swoonatra and his fans, the Sinatra Ticks. By 1944, he had had 23 top 10 singles on the Billboard charts. And when he returned to the Paramount in October, somewhere between 30 to 35,000 screaming fans swarmed outside the theater, pushing to get in, spilling into the street and blocking traffic, essentially a teenage takeover of Times Square. With police called to try to calm what the papers would call the Columbus Day Riot, with the New Republic calling it a, quote, phenomenon of mass hysteria that's only seen two or three times in a century. It was the the biggest uh, fan club in the world was outside the Paramount Theater. People waiting, waiting uh, for hours and hours in the street just to have a glimpse of Sinatra. And uh, in those days, it was so inhuman for the artists to do seven shows a day. That's how uh, popular uh, Sinatra became. And, uh... Just as the girls had done during Listomania, they swarmed the singer and ripped at his clothes, trying to snatch the coveted polka dot bow tie right off of his neck. By the time Frank Sinatra had become a household name, an article in Time magazine had coined the term Bobby Soxer to refer to this new brand of trendy adolescent girl. The writer described them as major Frankie fans, little long-haired girls with round faces who wore ankle-length bobby socks. Girls who were just a little too obsessed with the fashion crazes of the 1940s. Sounds quaint, right? Nope, you're wrong. Everything during the 1940s was totally nuts. The men were at war abroad fighting a larger-than-life enemy, which meant that women and girls had to do man's work. This genderqueer, Rosie the Riveter duty, was thrust upon them with the unsubtle encouragement of the U.S. government and culture at large, a government and culture who were also panicked about the new agency that this work was giving to these girls and women. It was allowing them to move more freely, to focus on their own interests and their own desires, rather than just submitting smilingly to the desires of their husbands or whatever man happens to be in the room. And what, dear listeners, always seems to accompany a threat to the power of the patriarchy. One of those delightful moral panics, of course, this time about the menacing, vicious, degenerate Bobby Sox Brigade. The New York Daily Mirror called them, quote, shouting neurotic extremists who make a cult of the boy. In March 1944, Newsweek blared that, quote, the greatest tragedy of the war was the moral breakdown among American girls. 
the news reported that the Bobby Soxers had taken over Times Square full-time, and indeed there was a curfew imposed for those under 16, as police had reported a 100% increase in delinquent girl cases. Teenage girls and women who ever did anything alone in public were accused of being victory girls, young women who slept with soldiers because they felt it was their sovereign wartime duty, those that were blamed for the spread of venereal disease that was taking our boys down from the inside. Of course, it had nothing to do with what the boys were getting up to themselves. There were actually official meetings to warn young soldiers about the girl next door. All of a sudden, teenage girls were dangerous. Not just dangerous, they were threats to national security, to the very foundation of America itself. As Swoonatra continued to cause mass swooning, there were explanations of all kinds from psychologists and sociologists and politicians as to why their previously docile girls and young women were acting out like this, with some saying he was an emotional stand-in for soldiers gone overseas, and others saying they had mid-century daddy issues, and yet others pointing to a medical diagnosis called mammary hyperesthesia, in which Frankie represented a hungry son needing to be mothered. And then Newsweek said what no one else seemed to want to say— that perhaps there was a sexual element to all of this. They called it a mass sexual delirium. In a singular breath of fresh air, a writer for the Brooklyn Daily Eagle named Sheila McKeon had this to say, quote, Somebody with a gray beard always has to call it mass hysteria or something. Now, regardless of what it was that made these teen girls go completely crazy, they were still clearly emerging as the most powerful consumers of American popular music, and the industry was no longer able to write them all off as blithering fools. In fact, they were all but forced to permanently shift the entire market to suit a younger demographic. A demographic that had previously been adults ages 30 to 50. The cultural power of the fangirl was growing, and so was the fear of the growing freedom it was giving them, especially when it came to sex. More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your 
schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And now, back to the show. Now, ladies and gentlemen, yes, that's right, Elvis Presley. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, uh, could I have your attention, please? Uh, I'd like to tell you that we're going to do a sad song for you. This song here is one of the saddest songs we've ever heard. In 1957, a man who would come to be known as Elvis the Pelvis appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show to an audience of 54 million people, which was at the time 82% of the viewing public. But that pelvis was seen as a sexual atom bomb that threatened national security. After seeing the show, a Catholic bishop wrote FBI head J. Edgar Hoover to express concern that Elvis was, quote, a definite danger to the United States because he was rousing, quote, the sexual passions of American youth. Elvis's sexual appeal was so dangerous, in fact, that his hip thrusts were hidden from that huge American audience, the censors only allowing him to be filmed from the waist up. But everybody knew what was going on. Sex was all over his face, in the way he curled his lip when he sang, in his dark, slicked-back hair, in his sly eyes that were made darker by a ring of eyeliner. I mean, there is a lot to critique about Elvis Presley, but for right now, we're going to remember that he was smolderingly hot in his time. And because there was a television in most American homes by that time, he became far more accessible than Frank Sinatra had been. Parents considered Elvis to be much more dangerous than the soft string bean Frankie. This was in part because Elvis had 100% appropriated his fashion style from the black blues musicians that he knew in Memphis. 
buying his clothes from the same stores they did and then mixing their playing styles with country music, emphasizing his blue-collar bad boy image, and then adding in an overt sexuality previously pretty absent from white popular music. All this mixed together frightened the older generation, as it had when white teenagers of the 1920s partied in jazz bars, very much against the will of their parents. And you can learn more about that in our Context Clues re-release that we did for this episode called Teenage Sex. When it came to Elvis, it seemed like putting a white face on all of those qualities made it just acceptable enough to rocket the kid to a new level of fame. Where some considered Elvis a threat, others considered him a joke. Like Herb Rowe in the Miami Daily News, who wrote, quote, Elvis can't sing, can't play the guitar, and can't dance. Yet 2,000 idiots per show yelp every time he opens his mouth, plucks a guitar string, or shakes his pelvis like any striptease babe in town. Mac Reynolds, in an editorial for the Vancouver Sun, I hope that he later regretted, said, quote, it's a frightening thing for a man to watch his women debase themselves. If any daughter of mine broke out of the woodshed tonight to see Elvis Presley in the Empire Stadium, I'd kick her teeth in. And they call women emotional. I love them. I don't care what anybody thinks. I love the Beatles for them, and I'll always love them. Even when I'm 105 and an old grandmother, I'll love them. And Paul McCartney, if you are listening, Adrian from Brooklyn loves you with all her heart. I love you, Paul, and please come to the window so I can just see you. I saw you smoking before, and I kissed the limousine you looked at him. But I love you, and I want you, Paul. Please look at him. And Ringo, you can look at him, too, because I like you. Just gorgeous. He's gorgeous. He's got a beautiful nose. In late 1963, reports began airing on American television all about the unprecedented record sales and out-of-control fans of a new group overseas with goofy headlines like, Beetle Bug Bites Britain. The suburban adults of America collectively sneered at the four-piece group and their matching unorthodox hairstyles, worn down and so offensively long that it actually covered their ears a little bit. As we well know, there is something about a moody hairstyle that drives the girls absolutely wild. And when American teeny boppers got their first look at these skinny, shaggy dreamboats, it became clear that this band was the new face of popular music. This revelation was much to the collective distaste of the critics and of industry giant Capitol Records, who the year before had written the Beatles off completely as a passing fad. Suddenly, they were rushing their latest single for the American market, and by early 1964, I Want to Hold Your Hand made it on the Billboard charts. That sealed the deal. The Beatles were coming to America. 3,000 screaming teenagers are at New York's Kennedy Airport to greet, you guessed it, the Beatles. This rock and roll group has taken over as the kingpins of musical appreciation among the younger element. Some music critics call their harmony unmistakably diatonic. Others say it's pandiatomic. 
parents say it's just plain pandemonium. New York City cops are hard-pressed protecting the Beatles at their hotel. On every side, there is hero worship that recalls the heydays of Elvis Presley and Frank Sinatra. With one Beatle bedded with a sore throat, three of the quartet take an airing in Central Park. There was absolutely no truth to the rumor that the zoo's laughing hyena was driven underground. 8,000 fans watched the Beatles play their very first American concert in Washington, D.C. on February 7, 1964. And by then, the girls were already well-versed in the personal tastes of their dream boyfriends. In a 1963 television interview, George Harrison had jokingly told the host that jelly bellies were his favorite treat and that John had stolen his jelly bellies. Big mistake. Fans in England began mailing the guys boxes upon boxes of jelly bellies and then took to throwing them on stage. By the time they got to America, they found out that the counterpart to the jelly belly is the jelly bean, and those are much harder. And the Beatles were pelted with them nightly, no matter how much they protested. To make matters worse, we're on a circular stage, so they hit us from all sides. Imagine waves of rock-hard little bullets raining down on you from the sky. If jelly beans traveling about 50 mile an hour through the air hit you in the eye, you're finished, you know, you're blind, aren't you? A couple days later, a record-breaking audience of 73 million tuned in to watch the Beatles' debut performance on The Ed Sullivan Show. Over the next two years, the Beatles would return to America to perform for more record-breaking crowds, most notably at Shea Stadium in New York City, where they performed for 55,000 people in a show credited with originating the modern stadium concert tour. Girls peed their pants, fainted, or just totally collapsed from emotional exhaustion all throughout the show. One fan told of becoming popular at her high school because she had been the only one in her whole town to go to a Beatles show. Quote, My mother had made me a dress to wear, and when I got back, the other girls wanted to cut it up and auction off the pieces. Of course, the reactive pearl-clutching of Beatlemania was no different than it was in the days of Listomania, or the days of Swoonatra, or the days of Elvis the Pelvis. There was shock and disgust and, of course, highbrow takes on what was going on. One particularly white and bearded psychologist posited that these fangirls were, quote, subconsciously preparing for motherhood. Their frenzied screams are a rehearsal for that moment. By and large, it was not popular for young men to like Frankie or Elvis or even the Beatles. Historically, we could say that, in the realms of popular culture, from books to movies to TV shows, everything that a girl touches becomes contaminated. If too many girls like something, it becomes disqualified from the world of boys and men, written off as frivolous, stupid, annoying, laughable, especially if that thing happens to have a patented dreamboat at its center. 
Let's return to the world of Sinatra mania for a second. Just two days after the Columbus Day riot shook Times Square with those tens of thousands of screaming teens trying to brush their hand against anything that Frank Sinatra had even looked at. Because of the never-ending demand, he just kept playing show after show there, night after night, with more and more women falling under his spell. <laughs> well, one young man had had it up to here with these Bobby Soxers, and legend has it that evening, Frank Sinatra would take an egg right between his blue eyes. An early incel named Alexander Dora Goku Pets would tell the story the next day through the always reliable New York Daily News, complete with a picture of this Richie Cunningham-looking bitch showing the grip he used on the egg. Here's a quote from the article in which Alexander recalls the event himself. Here we go. <clears throat> Now, I wear bow ties. I've been wearing bow ties consecutively since I was seven years of age. In fact, I have a collection of 200 bow ties. Most of them are ready-made. Anyway, that night two years ago, Frank Sinatra was wearing a bow tie. What is more, he's lean and lanky like me. Look at him. He becomes famous. I'm often taken for him. Girls see my bow tie and shriek, Frank Sinatra. If they said Frank Sinatra looked like me, well, I would be okay. But they say I look like Frank Sinatra. Wednesday, I read a paper and saw those poor girls swooning at the sight of him. Saturday, I bought three eggs, the freshest and largest I could buy. I got in the 20th row orchestra, one seat from the aisle. I happened to be in the midst of a swooning section. I said, how can you fall for a guy like that? I took two eggs in my left hand and one in my right, and I hit him between the eyes. His mouth was open. It dripped down his face. His arms fell and I felt good. The second egg hit him in the chest. The third one I flung and didn't even see where it went. I spun around, but I couldn't move a step. Girls, on all sides of me, I couldn't move. My God! The day after the incident, a newspaper described what happened next. Quote, the horde of female rug cutters were confronted with the deliberate desecration of their bow tie idol. Someone shouted, Get the skunk who done it! A 15-year-old girl named Aileen Sandakis saw the scene unfold, quote, I grabbed him right after the third egg. My friend hit him with her binoculars, and I got a couple in with my handbag. Reports said he'd also been beaten with coats, umbrellas, and lunch bags, with his shirt collar ripped to shreds. Some men saw our patron incel Alexander as a kind of folk hero, with one letter to the editor from War Nerves saying he, quote, should be awarded a medal for bravery. He had the right idea, but he should have tossed the eggs at the screaming chicks instead of at Sinatra. 
Honest, man, it isn't Sinatra's voice that you really dislike. It's those horrible, ghoulish squealers in his audience. And another printed in Collier's Magazine, quote, Our hearts, being masculine, tell us that Alexander Ivanik Dorogokupets is a hero and a young man who already has deserved well of the Republic. The next day, and there are great photos to prove it, a bunch of Navy men in full uniform threw tomatoes at the giant poster of Frankie outside the Paramount Theater. But on the other hand, Alexander was bombarded by vicious hate letters, hundreds of them, after newspapers went ahead and printed the address of his parents' house. He feared going outside lest he get another pair of binoculars straight to the dome. Another news report described his fear like this. He had been caught up in the, quote, ranks of angry girlhood. A mere male, utterly unable to cope with the beating he received at the hands of a house full of enraged teenagers. How quickly his ridicule had turned to terror. The message was clear. And the girls had made it so. They defended their territory. This was the realm of girlhood. And if the boys were to attend, they would have to do so on the girls' terms. Even if it seemed like these fangirls were at the mercy of something, hypnotized by young men that drove them to hysterics, that wasn't exactly what was going on. Collectively, This was an almost singular place where girls held the power. A primal kind of power. A massive tribe in the middle of a massive ritual that better not be interrupted. Restraint has always been the primary demand placed on young women. To restrain almost all emotion. To never make a scene. To only cry if it's absolutely appropriate. And to certainly never raise her voice or break any social codes. And of course, girls and women had to restrain themselves from sex while also being responsible for restraining the guy too. But here, at these concerts, all bets were off. They were free to tear out their little hearts and throw them on stage, along with thousands of other girls like them, who really understood. More after this. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for Season 9. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today. And now, back to the show. It would take some time and some distance before the elitist media would give any of these performers real praise as actual artists and not just eye-candy chumps who can't even play their instruments. I don't know. To me, it sounds like they were all just jealous. But now, in retrospect... 
we can look back and see that the musicians we most remember, the songs that define generations of American culture, were written with these young girls in mind. Even more so than Frankie and Elvis, the Beatles used personal pronouns in many of their songs, with Paul McCartney admitting that it was a little trick. We try to do that, you know, make it personal. When the Beatles released their second U.S. album, Meet the Beatles, it was actually reassembled by Columbia Records to include relationship songs exclusively because that's what their major market was demanding. Not only that, but these girls had picked out artists who would go on to have long, prolific, historic careers, those who would become veritable gods of popular music. And after that, no one was laughing at them anymore, but no one seemed to want to give any credit to the girls. One has to wonder, without the hysterical fangirl, would we have ever had the Beatles? In all the popular acts we've covered, there's this unmistakably androgynous quality to the stars. Even the allegedly masculine Elvis wore eyeliner and sang love songs mournfully and smiled boyishly, with his vulnerability best illustrated by the fact that his signature sexy dance moves were born out of the fact that when his nerves got bad, his knees would shake. A lot of times, to teenage girls, full-grown manly men are kind of scary, but these were safer, softer men who had real emotions, real love inside of them. Men they not only wanted to fall in love with, but men that also reminded them of themselves, of their own emotions that they weren't allowed to talk about. It made them feel seen, respected, understood, and even loved if only in the realm of fantasy. But I still think that counts for something. When Beatlemania hit in the 1960s, the media pundits consoled concerned adults, saying that the girls who had once screamed for Frank Sinatra had grown up to be responsible, settled housewives. But in the case of the Beatles, that wasn't completely true. In many ways, these fan frenzies, this fangirl hysteria, all these manias, were heralding in the sexual revolution. And at least some of these girls would become feminists in the 1970s, stepping out of those stadiums with a new collective power. Though it was unseemly to admit it, of course sex was a major component of the appeal of these men. They were safe objects of lust that could never ruin their reputations or accidentally get them pregnant or break their hearts with no regard. But sex itself has also always been intrinsically tied to the experience of freedom. Like its American counterparts, Listomania also took place in an area known for its repressive culture and strict gender roles. But this dark, handsome, feminine, emotional man with an uncouth hairstyle promised something more than the status quo. He promised sex and romance and art and beauty and passion and adventure and freedom. 
A woman interviewed about her own time participating in Beatlemania put it this way, quote, It didn't feel sexual as I would now define that. It felt more about wanting freedom. I didn't want to grow up and be a wife, and it seemed to me that the Beatles had the kind of freedom I wanted. No rules. They could spend two days lying in bed. They ran around on motorbikes, ate from room service. I didn't want to sleep with Paul McCartney. I was too young. But I wanted to be like them, something larger than life. No matter how many times these early fangirls wrote the names of their idols on their notebooks with hearts, they were never going to marry John or Paul or George or Ringo. They were never going to be Mrs. List or Mrs. Presley or Mrs. Sinatra. But that didn't mean they weren't feeling something akin to real desire and real love that was untainted by what marriage meant for a girl in the 1800s or the 1900s or this very day. This music and these singers and these spaces allowed their fans to feel so much, to lose control in a way that would literally get them locked up in an institution otherwise. These were artists who represented the great wide open, possibilities beyond what teen girls were told they could hope for. These teen idols were just that, idols to be worshipped, to the gods of freedom, of desire, of power. When you hear it, the primal scream of the primal teenage girl with 50,000 others, is that really something you want to laugh at? This was American Hysteria. Next time on the show, we're going to pick up where we left off with an episode we're calling Boy Bands. If you want more of our show, consider becoming a patron where you can get access to our show, Hysteria Home Companion, where producer Miranda and I talk about all the hottest gossip from the cutting room floor of each different topic we cover. You can also get access to my podcast called Walk With Me, where I go on walks and talk about whatever I've been thinking about, usually alone in the woods. Just head to patreon.com slash American Hysteria. We would love to have you. And thank you so much to all our patrons, old and new. You keep our show alive. Come and follow us on social media at American Hysteria Podcast on Instagram and at Amer Hysteria on Twitter. If you'd like to get your mitts on some sick merch, head to AmericanHysteria.com. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Sound designed by Clear Como Studios. Researched and co-written by Riley Smith. And produced and co-edited by Miranda Zickler. With voice acting from Will Rogers. And on this one, Riley Smith. Thanks, as always, for listening. And may all your favorite teen idols always write back to your fan letters. Have a great week. The headlines remind us daily. 
The world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.